in chapter 1 of Revelation, beginning partway through verse 5, John writes, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. That begins this letter that John is writing to the seven churches that was intended for those seven churches, but also for us. And at the time of him writing this, many who would have read this would have been, in fact, those who would have been present, possibly, when Christ was pierced, when his blood was shed, when his body was broken. And you might say, well, then this letter is not addressed to us. This is not something that we need to pay close attention to it because I was not there. I did not crucify my Lord. And I would say, I did. I crucified him. I might as been I might as well have been there. I might as well have been the one who had the whips that had the bones in the end of the whips that was ripping flesh as it was coming across his back. I might as well have been the one that was mocking him as he tried to carry those beams up the hill of Golgotha. I might as well been the one been, I might as well have been the one to hold the hammer to drive the nails through the wrists and through the ankles of Jesus Christ. And I might as well have been the one who put the crown of thorns on his head and pressed it down such to where those thorns would bury deep inside the flesh around his scalp. I might as well have been the one that casted lots at the base of the cross. No, I was not there, and no, you were not there, but nonetheless, your sin is why he took the cross. Yet he is risen. He's risen. The grave could not hold the one who was crucified, Jesus Christ. He died, and yet he lives. And our hope is found in the fact that he is returning. And that's what this entire letter is about. This entire letter is telling the people of God that Christ is coming back. All the pain, all the toil, all the struggle. You who are weary and heavy laden, Christ is coming back. He is coming back and he's coming back Soon, and you say, how soon? We've been waiting for 2,000 years. Folks, 2,000 years is not that long in the scope of eternity. It is a blip. It is a blip. And so we come to the end 
of this great letter, which is a, an epistle, which is a prophecy, which is apocalyptic, and which is testimony of John and of Christ. It is a revelation, and we are here at the conclusion. And I love the heading of this, fa- of this final passage in my text, in my Bible, in the ESV here, the heading, which is not inspired. It's a heading that authors have, that, that translators have put in there to kind of break it up to make, help us understand. But the heading, nonetheless, is very, um, very appropriate. It just says this, Jesus is coming. And this morning, before we begin, that's what I want to ask you. Do you really believe that Jesus is coming? And if you believe that Jesus is coming, are you living like Jesus is coming back? Jesus is coming back, and He is going to hold account to all individuals according to their deeds. And what we need to be sure of is that when we are held account, we are not being held account of our deeds, but we're being held accountable to Christ's deeds, that when God looks upon us, He sees Jesus, that that's what He sees. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I do not want to be judged by my works. I do not want to be judged by my might. I want to be judged by the faith that God has blessed me with through His grace, by His grace. And so let's pray, and we're going to dive into these final, these final verses. We're just going to walk right through. I'm going to explain a few things. I'm going to try to wrap it up in this nice epilogue. And then next week, we're going to jump into Mark. We're going to do a synopsis of Mark, an overview of Mark, and we're, we're moving right ahead through this. Um, but uh, I want to spend some significant time here this morning looking at this passage, and I hope that it will bless you this morning. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless us as we read your word. We know that as we read your word that we know that we will be blessed. Your word says that we will. And I pray, though, that this morning that we will receive a special blessing of your word and that it will give us encouragement and give us hope, Lord, that it will motivate us for, more faith, for greater faithfulness as we walk through this life, as we uh, attempt uh, in, in all of our meagerness, Father, Father, to be able to follow Christ to the best of our abilities, Lord. And I pray that you would show mercy on us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the shed blood of Christ, the body that was broken. We thank you for the cross. And we thank you for your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In verse 6 it says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. Now, now what words are we talking about? Well, let's jump back to verse 5 of, verse, of chapter 22. And it says, And night will be no more. And this is as Christ comes. It says, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is going to reign forever and ever with the Son of God, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. We will reign alongside them. And then he says, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. These words. Now, I believe that's addressing three things. In the scope of this text, I believe it's addressing 
the, in context the words that immediately precede it. That he's talking about what's, what's coming here, okay? In those previous w- verses where it talks about uh, the, these, uh, this city, this new Jerusalem, and this new earth. I believe he's talking about that, that these words about this city, about the bride and how she'll be bejeweled, if you will, and how she will look, the, the, that testimony is true. It's trustworthy and it's true. You can bank on it. You can trust it. You can set your hope in that. Why? Because it is true, because it comes from the very lips of Christ himself. So I believe he's referring to that. Secondarily, I believe that he's referring to the entire letter of Revelation, that these words of Revelation are true. All of them. They will come to pass. But finally, I don't believe that there would be any argument that he's saying everything that you've read up until now is true. Everything. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. All the way to the end. These are all true. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what soon must take place. If we jump back to Revelation chapter 1, he says something very similar in verse 3. He says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep that is what is written in it, for the time is near. These are soon to take place, right? And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Christ is coming soon. Now, they have been saying that, that Christ is coming soon from the moment that Christ ascended to the throne. As we read through the New Testament, as we read through the New Testament, we read the words, if we read Revelation and then apply Revelation back across the entire New Testament, what we'll see is that the believers, that the apostles, that Paul really did believe that Christ was coming soon. They believed that Christ could come at any moment. And so there is an urgency in the way that Paul preaches, in the way that Paul writes. There is an urgency in the words of John. There's an urgency in the words of Peter that Christ is coming soon. They believed it when when Christ said, I'm coming back. They believed those words. Christ is coming soon. And what I want to ask us is, do we have that same sense of urgency? I don't believe we do, personally. I, I believe that, you know, and we always say that we live in this kind of fast, fast-paced fast world, and we say, what do you mean that there's no urgency? It's, it's like we're always get up and go, right? I mean, parents with kids or parents, grandparents with kids understand that feeling, right? There's always this kind of get up and go. There's never time enough in the day to get things done. What do you mean that there is no urgency? There is an urgency in this life, it seems, for everything but Christ. Christ can take a back seat. There will be time to proclaim later. There will be time to live later. There will be time to follow later. There's no urgency for that because all of our urgency is taken up by things of this world. And what I want to say is our priorities are wrong. 
Our priorities are all messed up. They're all out of whack. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one, and hear this, who keeps the words of the prophecy of the book. What does that mean, who keeps it? I believe that it's more than just, you know, I have these words, I'm going to put them in my, put them in my binder, I'm going to keep the words, right? I'm going to keep a hold of them. I believe what it means is, is that when we keep them, that we're not just keeping them, that we just don't, that it's more than that we know them, but it's that we know them and we apply them. Someone who believes that Jesus Christ is coming back soon lives differently. It is a different style of life. Individuals who believe that Christ is coming back soon, they are not worried. They are not fearful about what the world is going to throw at them. It is a different level of courage. It is a different level of of motivation in their life. An individual, a believer, who believes that Christ could come at any moment is not holding back from proclaiming the gospel. They're not worried about being ashamed. They're not worried about embarrassment because Christ is coming soon. It's just a different way of living. There's a seriousness about it. That's also one of my concerns. And actually, I have this concern about myself sometimes. I know that I'm a goofy person, okay? I know I'm a goofy person. My sister's shaking her head, yes. I am a goofy person. That is my personality, okay? But I have to guard myself about being goofy about this. There's a seriousness about this that we should not take for granted. Throughout Scripture, we see testimony, we see examples of individuals saying, listen, Christ is coming back. Have your shoes tied, right? Have your shoes on, have them laced up. There's no time to put le- to leaven that bread. There's no time for that, right? We're going all the way back to the Exodus now, right? And he says, God says, there's no time for leaven. Keep your shoes on, stay in the house, and be ready because I'm coming, right? Well, it's the same thing. There is a second exodus, but we're not leaving. Christ is coming here. And we've got to be ready. We've got to be present. And there's just a a different level of seriousness about individuals who earnestly believe that. Verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. He's, it's, it's like he's testifying in court. He's testifying in court. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Do you see that? The angel is a fellow servant with you and John and the prophets and all of those who keep this book. The angel is like putting himself down on the believer's level and saying, don't worship me. What does he say? Worship God. Worship God. And see, John, forgive him. He can't help it. The magnificence of the revelation that is here before him. And you know what? I, I think that we should probably just take a step back here because it has taken us I don't know how long to make it through this. 
Six months? Seven months? It's been a while, right? It did not take John that long to receive that vision. It happened in a... Can you imagine everything that we have read, everything that we have experienced and tried to soak up over the last six months taking place in moments with John? I mean, he's just having all this stuff just fly at him. It is no wonder he falls down in worship. He just can't help himself. I mean, it's all, and, and Angel says, even still, no, do not worship me, worship God. I realize, I realize that this message that I am sharing with you makes you want to worship, but still, I'm just the messenger. Worship the author. Worship the one who wrote it in the first place, right? He's the one worthy of worship. And that's what this book should cause us to do. It should cause us to want to worship. There is no other book, I believe, in Scripture that should cause us to want to worship more than Revelation. We should have that same kind of encouragement that John does to worship God. Because he's saying, listen, all these troubles, all this tribulation that you all are experiencing, it's but a moment and I am coming back. Christ is coming back. I'm going to pull you out of it. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, why is he telling them to do that? It's because people need to know. People need to know. Now, I have a reference in my book, and it goes back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Because in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, and if you've not read Daniel, let me encourage you to do that. Oftentimes, people will read Daniel right along with Revelation. And the last six chapters of Daniel, chapters uh, 7 through 12, are apocalyptic and prophetic. He's looking forward, and he is addressing, Daniel is addressing things that are happening in the end times, that are happening in Revelation. But in verse 4 of Daniel, he says, Shut up the words of this book. Seal up the words of this book for a time. Now, why does he say that? I believe, personally, it's because we weren't ready for them. We weren't ready for those words yet. We weren't ready for that type of prophecy yet because things had not yet come to pass. Well, now things are coming to pass. We are now in the midst of the tribulation. Daniel was a testifying or prophesying to the tribulation that would occur. And now we're in the tribulation and he's saying, don't seal them up now. Open them up. Let people see what is getting ready to happen because Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Don't hide it. Warn people. We go down the streets. If you go down the city, you don't see it as often today, but sometimes you'll still see it. You'll drive down the streets and you'll see people with like these, these boards on their you know, front and back and they'll say, you know, like Jesus is coming or something like that. And we immediately write them off as lunatics. We immediately do that. All right. You'll see somebody on the corner with a, with a, a megaphone. You know, a bullhorn, is that what it's called? Something like that? And they're, and they're like, you know, Jesus is coming, repent, believe, you know, all of that. And we're like, look at them lunatics on the side. Of, even believers, look at those lunatics on the side of the street. Folks, they're not lunatics. Now, they may be a little quirky, okay? I give you that. They may be a little quirky. But folks, that's what the prophets were doing. What were they calling about, saying about John the Baptist? The dude's a lunatic. 
He's wearing, he's wearing like furs and eating locusts and honey. He's a nutcase, right? He's not a nutcase. He's proclaiming the truth. You know what? I think every one of us could do to be called a lunatic a little more often. Just a little bit more often. That person's crazy. That person's insane. Seriously. Donna, Sue, don't be ashamed when somebody calls you a lunatic. Don't do it. And Donna and Sue are like, we're in good company. (laughs) We should look and sound weird to a world that has sold itself out to itself. But we are sold out to Christ, and we are opening this book up and sharing with folks. Folks, you will lose friends over this. I'm just going to tell you. In fact, and not because you're a jerk. If you lose friends proclaiming the gospel because you're a jerk, then you're doing it wrong. Okay? But if you lose friends because you're sharing the gospel in love with grace, then so be it. Don't seal up the words of this book. Tell them that Jesus is coming. I heard somebody the other day say that they encourage their kids. They encourage their kids to, um, to, to follow whatever religion that they want, but that they shouldn't talk about it. That they shouldn't talk about it. I would argue that that is fine for every single religion that is out there except for Christianity. If you're not talking about Christianity, if you're not talking about your faith in Christ, then you are not following Christ. Because He commissioned us to do what? Go and tell the world. Go and tell the world of what Christ has done. The song, go tell it on the mountain. You know, we say it's a Christmas song. It's really a year-round song. We can sing it in July. It's okay. Tell them what Christ has done. Do not seal up the words of this book. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. He's not saying that it's... A, it's it, what, jo, what Tom Schreiner says is he says that, that John's not being, or the angel's not being fatalistic here. He's just saying this is the reality. This is the reality of where we live, is that the evildoer is going to be evil and the filthy is going to be filthy. The righteous needs to still be righteous and the holy still needs to be holy. You need to still go. Yes, they're going to spit on you. Yes, they're going to mock you. Yes, they're going to make fun of you. You will lose friends. You might even lose a job. So be it. So be it. Proclaim the gospel. Behold, I am coming soon, verse 12, bringing my recompense with me. I love that word, recompense. Bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Now, that should terrify individuals. That should terrify us. Behold, I am coming soon. I am bringing my recompense with me. It makes me think of that scene in Tombstone with Wyatt Earp. Tell him I'm coming. I'm not going to finish the line because it's got a curse word in it, but you get the idea, right? Because he's bringing something with him, right? 
Well, and that's what he's saying. He said, behold, I am coming soon, but I'm bringing my recompense with me, right? I'm bringing it with me to repay each one for what he has done. And that's where I say we should be terrified unless we have dipped our robes in the blood of Christ. I am the Alpha. Now, this is Christ talking here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That line, I'm going to tell you right now. Remember, Christ has been crucified, he was buried, he was raised, and he's now ascended. Okay, this letter is likely written after 70 AD. Okay, that was probably written around the 90s. Okay, is when this letter was written. So it's well after, 60 years after. Um, the life of Christ on earth, all right? But here we have Christ saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I dare say if Christ had said that on the earth, they would not have waited. They would have just slaughtered him right there. That is the most, that is the most messianic, divine thing i believe that christ says in all of scripture i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end i was at a convocation a few years ago at work and um and one thing i love about ksu others get real nervous about the university when it comes to this but one thing i love about ksu is that many of the folks that, that uh, either go to school at KSU or work at KSU, they're not shy about sharing their faith. And I love that. I, I can feel very comfortable being a Christian on that campus. Now, that's not everybody. That's not everybody, but that's most individuals. And so I'm very comfortable about that on campus most of the time. But this one time during the convocation, uh, all the professors had to wear our garb, you know, our Harry Potter outfits. That's what I call them, Okay. And so we put on our Harry Potter outfits, and we march in, and it's all regal, you know, this self-important thing. You know, we feel very important because we got our robes and our degrees and all that kind of stuff. And then we sit down in the mi- middle of the aisle, right? I get placed right. I always try to get on the ends, but for some reason I got stuck right in the middle of the section. Now, folks, for all of us self-important professors out there, I'm just going to tell you one thing. This is an aside. There is nothing to humble you more then sitting in the middle of that thing, and then all of a sudden having to use the bathroom while you're wearing that robe and while you're stuck in the middle of that aisle. That didn't happen that day, but I'm just going to tell you, okay? It will kind of bring you down a level, all right? So I'm sitting there, and they begin the convocation, and the, the, the choir gets up, and they sing this great hymn, and it's wonderful. I mean, it's a really neat convocation. We're all getting there. And, and, I, and soon I realize that, oh, they're making this out to be kind of a worship service, if you will, which was kind of odd. It was a little bit different. I wasn't used to that. It wasn't quite overt, usually. And then one speaker got up, and he was referring to a past president who's no longer there. And the speaker got up and said these words, Well, you've heard from the Alpha. Now you will hear from the Omega. And when he said that, I wish there had been like a video camera on my face when that happened because you would have seen me shrink three sizes. You know how the Grinch's heart grew ten sizes or something like that? Well, I shrunk three sizes. I was trying to find a way of crawling out of there 
before the Lord did some sort of Sodom and Gomorrah on that place, right? Because you don't say that, you don't refer to that in any way except for God himself. And that's exactly what Christ is doing here. He is saying, I am the Alpha Alpha and the Omega. The problem is, how many people are living as if they are the Alpha and the Omega? It begins and ends with them. And that's what the world teaches us. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city gates. Remember, outside, verse 15, outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Folks, you don't want to be outside the city gates. You want to be inside the gates, remember? Remember the temple? That you wanted to be inside the walls of the temple. You wanted to be in amongst the crowd. You didn't want to be outside because that's where the unbelievers were. That's where the unclean individuals were. We want to be inside the city gates because that's where the believers are. And it says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. In Genesis chapter 3, God has provided Adam and Eve everything that they need And they said, you can have everything here, including the fruit from the tree of life, but you can't have this tree. And when Adam and Eve fell and they ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what did God say? We must cast them out of the garden lest they eat from the fruit of the tree of life and therefore live forever. We must remove them from there. And so what has once been removed from us has now been provided back. We now have access again to the tree of life. You see what's happening here is that God is now reconciling everything back to the way it was intended to be. Where once there was a tree of life removed, he's now planted it back in its place. Where once God had separated us from himself, where we had to walk alone, if you will, in some sense, he now dwells where? Amongst us. We are now walking with God again. That is what we have to look forward to. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That's messianic language there. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I mean, he's laying it all out there. Like, he's saying everything. Like, in, in this one paragraph, he's just proclaiming his divinity right here. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. I am the morning star. I am the root of David. I am everything here. I am absolutely everything. But then in verse 17, he says this. He says, the Spirit and the Bride... Say, come. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Come. It's not just the Spirit that's saying that. Who's also saying it? The church is. Come. 
come. And let the one who hears says, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to come. Verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, like I said before, it is likely that the angel is referring, well, that Christ is referring here to Revelation. That's likely what he's referring to. Don't add to this revelation. Don't take away. Now, Thomas Jefferson was known to have a Bible that he actually, in fact, his, if you open his Bible, they still have it. If you look at his Bible, there are holes in it. There are holes in the pages where he had cut out certain passages out of that Bible that offended him. They offended him. And many of those words, if I'm not, and I may be incorrect here, you can check, don't, don't take this for granted, but I believe that many of those verses referred to the blood of Christ being shed, the sacrifice, the atonement, those things offended Jefferson. So what does he do? He just cuts them out as if now they don't exist. Now, for a smart man, that's a pretty stupid thing to do. Like, oh, if I just take some scissors and cut those words out, they don't exist anymore. If that were true, folks, we'd be cutting a lot of things out, okay? So, the, so Christ warns us of removing anything from this revelation. This revelation is perfect, and we need it all. Don't remove anything from this. But likewise, don't add anything to it. What I find is that today, people are removing things from the gospel, but just as likely they're adding things to it. And so let me say this. It's sort of like this. In order to be saved, you need Jesus and. So they start adding, right? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, for salvation, you need Jesus and nothing else. But we tend to start adding other things to it. And in fact, the Catholic Church teaches that very thing, that you need Jesus, faith, if you will, and works. You need them both, right? We don't add anything to what God has for us here. It's perfect in every way. And if we start adding things, what does Jesus say? Well, I'm going to add to you the plagues. Folks, don't do it. Don't do it. Take God at His word. It's perfect. Don't add and don't take away. Sometimes we take away things. We remove things from the gospel and from God's revelation to, to us when we're proclaiming or teaching others because it sounds offensive. We don't want to hurt their feelings. So we take things away. You know what happens when you're trying to build something 
according to instructions and you remove pages from that, a four-legged table becomes a two-legged chair. And when you sit on it, you break it. You don't take away from God's Word and you don't add to. And the warning is stiff. In verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Is that you this morning? Can you rightly say, Surely I, can you rightly say this morning, Come, Lord Jesus? Can you rightly say that this morning? both with your words, with your heart, with your life. There are many young people, and I remember when I was a youth, ah, when I was a youth minister, that when I would talk about Revelation and we would, when I would talk about this idea that Christ is coming soon, many of the young people, they would cringe at that. And it's not because they didn't love Jesus. They did love Jesus. But, you know, they're teenagers, right? I, like, they haven't gotten to experience all these things, right? They haven't gotten to experience life. They haven't gotten to experience maybe high school or college or boyfriends or girlfriends or marriage or children, a cool job. You know, they hadn't gotten to experience those things. So what do they do? They say, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. But I need him to wait just a little bit, just a little bit, so I can experience all these other things first, right? And every one of us in here who are now no longer children, we look back on that, and hopefully we can understand where they're coming from, and that we don't hold that against them. But we also realize, now that we have some, some, some miles on this road, okay, that whatever we have experienced in life cannot compare to what experiencing Christ will be like. That none of that was worth postponing Jesus coming, right? Not, and I don't want to be morbid this morning, but oftentimes when we read the newspaper and we read about a young person dying, young, you know, as a child, as a teenager, as a very young adult, we mourn that and we say, and it's right to mourn, it's right to mourn that, but then we say they died too soon or they died too young. Now, I get exactly what they mean. I get, so don't, don't think that I'm, I'm uh, uh, you know, talking smack against individuals. I'm really not, Okay. But I want you to think about that. First of all, they die too soon. That's not true. We die at our appointed time. It's not an accident, remember. It's all by God's providence. But what we mean by that is we say they died too soon. They didn't get to experience all these other things, right? And I was thinking about this driving to, school, driving to church this morning. Is that no, a buddy of mine who died at 30 years old didn't get to experience a lot of things. His child being born, other stuff. But I'm just sitting here thinking, 
He's like 13 years ahead of me on experiencing Jesus face to face. He's not mourning that of what he's missed. He is celebrating what he has gained. And all I can say is, may we all have that privilege. And I would say sooner than later. I'm not wishing all of us, you know, get hit by a bus on the way home. That's not what I mean. But if we do, there's Christ. And that's what this letter should want us to should call us to do. Is that no matter what, whatever comes our way, we can still say, "Come, Lord Jesus." Come, Lord Jesus, because whatever he has, whatever he has, is more than what we could ever compare to what the, this world has nothing in comparison to what Christ has for us. And so let us be a people who say, come, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly, come quickly, relieve us from this. And while we wait, we are going to worship while we wait, we're going to serve. And while we wait, we're going to be faithful and follow Christ in all that we do. But at the same time, we're going to say, come and come quickly. Come and come quickly. Because there is nothing better than being in the presence of Christ. Because remember, He'll be dwelling with us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this book this letter, this revelation. Thank you for all that you have done, Lord. And we ask your blessings. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.